three vacation destinations, two tourists, and one puppet that just wants to be a real boy by killing other boys. Welcome to From the Bone Vault, coming to you live from Below Midnight Lair. I'm Gil. And I'm Levi. This week we watched Westworld. Levi, hit me with some facts. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, this film was a near-future sci-fi film. It actually takes place in 1983. I don't know if they mentioned that in the film. Hmm. But it's a future in which vacationers spend $1,000 a day to live in a fantasy world of their choosing with realistic humanoid robots that serve their every desire. And it was released November 21st, 1973. It was written and directed by noted author Michael Crichton. And within the film, they feature three different worlds, Westworld, Medieval World, and Roman World. And each of the three worlds are fashioned, uh, as stated by Michael Crichton, after sort of the movie versions of these. They're not meant to be historically accurate. They're just meant to portray a sort of... Uh, I guess really to, to kind of portray what people would think those eras would be like, where they would want to vacation. Right. Not so much the historically accurate stuff. For the cast, we had Yule oh, Brenner what as what the gunslinger. Cast. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, and he, Yule Brenner. Yule yeah. Brenner. And his character was actually modeled a little bit after his character from Magnificent Seven. He's wearing pretty much the same outfit. Oh, yeah. And it was I think it was meant to be sort of a sly nod to it. And we have Richard Benjamin as, I guess you'd call him the protagonist, Peter Martin. We have James Brolin as John Blaine and his wonderful hair. (laughs) I don't think the hair was credited. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other characters uh, that we see a lot is the chief supervisor, played by Alan Oppenheimer. And we have a lot of bit players in this movie. And one thing that sort of gives Westworld its... 60s Hollywood Western aesthetic is the fact that a lot of these bit players like the first sheriff, the bartender, and even the Black Knight in Medieval World actually acted in a lot of Westerns through the 40s to the 60s. And so I think that sort of lends the uh, authentic, when I say authentic, I mean to, you know, Hollywood. Right, and to the viewing (laughs) audience as well. They're probably used to to seeing these guys in these kind of roles, because they've been seeing them for this many years. As I said before, the settings were purposefully made to invoke Hollywood. Uh, Crichton wasn't worried about historical accuracy, and in fact, he started this story as a book, and it just didn't work. He said that you had to have the visuals on the screen to sort of communicate this idea, and I think it worked pretty well in that sense. Very well. And Michael Crichton himself is a very noted science fiction author. And he's one of my favorite authors. I've read a lot of his books multiple times. And some of his best known novels are Jurassic Park. No one's uh, ever read that. Congo. (laughs) And, uh, many, many others that have been made into Hollywood movies. And in fact, in the 90s, he had a glut of 
all kinds of credits. Uh, he didn't necessarily write all the screenplays, but a lot of his books got made into movies in the 90s. He wrote screenplays like Twister, and uh, he wrote some screenplays in the 60s and 70s. Right after Westworld, he kind of wanted to get away from science fiction, so he wrote The Great Train Robbery, which is a pretty decent movie. Have you ever seen it, Gil? No, no, that's actually one I haven't checked out. Okay, you should check it out. It's got Sean Connery. It's a pretty good uh Oh, I about to say, you, you had me at Sean Connery. I'm down. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, definitely check it out. And he wrote some other sci-fi movies, and his novels were uh, adapted in the 60s all the way to, you know, the 2000s and beyond. But... um he was actually inspired to write Westworld when he was writing the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. And he saw these animatronic characters that were fairly lifelike. And of course, him being who he was, he thought, oh, what if they run amok and start killing people? So that's where this idea came from. I mean, you got to give it to the guy. I mean, <laughs> he just drew inspiration from the craziest places, man. Yeah. I mean, going through the years, that was sort of, that became his thing was to write about technology run amok. And that is sort of a thread that can be pulled through all of his writing in some, in some form. Right. And there's a lot of, we can get into this later, but there's a lot of plot structure in Westworld that is reflected in Jurassic Park. And there's actually a line in the movie where, uh, Ian Malcolm says to, uh, John Hammond that John Hammond says, well, Disney had all kinds of problems when he opened Disney world. And, uh, Malcolm says, yeah, John, but when the pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. <laughs> <laughs> when I was researching Westworld, I found this inspiration came from pirates of the Caribbean. So I kind of think maybe that was sort of oh, a yeah. nod to him. Yeah. And had that was pretty been. cool. Had to be. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh, man, that makes me love Jeff Goldblum and hate him even more. Hate him? Why do you hate Jeff Goldblum? Uh, we can... We, another time. Okay, we that'll, go be another, into, that'll be a, a special podcast. That'll be another episode about why I love and hate Jeff Goldblum. Okay, I, I, I'm down for that. We can actually make a full podcast out of that, I think. Uh, I um, um, think uh, we uh, could uh, do uh, that. <laughs> the score for this movie was composed by Fred Carlin. And it combines traditional Western movie music with a lot of electronic noises and, and source sounds. And I think it makes the end of the movie, like the last act, really creepy. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was about to that. We can to get that. to that later, Oh, I guess, man, I can't wait to talk about the music. One thing I want to mention, in case I forget later, is the gunslinger's point of view. It looks kind of cheesy now because it's basically just super-duper pixelated video. And back then... I wasn't able to corroborate this source. I read it somewhere, but it said that the portions of the movie that show Yul Brynner's point of view as the robot took eight hours to produce 10 seconds of film. Really? Yeah, because they basically pixelated the information that was on the film strip and then put it back on 70 millimeter film. I guess maybe maybe I'm just too mired in the technology of modern era, but to me that just seems like a filter I could put on on via my phone nowadays, you know? I mean Well, it is. I mean, that's how technology has changed. Wow. And I mean, you got to think this movie was released in 73, and so it was probably produced, you know, in the early 70s, 71, 72, and computers definitely weren't very far along at that point. 
The film actually was pretty successful. It got around $4 million in rentals in the U.S. and Canada by the end of 1973. So it was a, a big hit at the box office. There were theaters that were renting it and, and displaying it everywhere. And it was actually re-released in 1976, and it earned about $7 million. So wow. it kind of grew in popularity. Justifiably so. And I'm sure that re-release was prompted, at least in part, by the sequel, which we'll talk about after the film, where it belongs. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually got around to watching that. Oh, we had a little bit of extra man. lead time for this podcast, and uh, I've got some things to say. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> but for now, I think, Gil, we could jump right into the recap of the movie, if that's good with you. Oh, heck yes. Let's do it. So... Overall, for the film, just to give you guys the full outline here, we have two men that travel to this futuristic theme park, enjoying the sights and sounds and the wonders, but unfortunately, they kind of watch everything deteriorate around them. Right. And we start the movie off with a television commercial for Delos Entertainment. <laughs> Hi, Ed Renfrew for Delos again. If there's anyone who doesn't know what Delos is, well, as we've always said, Delos is the vacation of the future today. At Dallas, you get your choice of the vacation you want. There's medieval world, Roman world, and of course, West world. And <laughs> for this commercial, apparently Crichton hired actual admin, and I don't think he hired Don Draper because this was not a great commercial, in my opinion. He did hire Don Draper's hair, though. It was very present. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Don Draper's hair after it fell out of the taxi and <laughs> got run over by a few cars. <laughs> but... Uh, First up, we have an announcer, and he's interviewing people as they come out. It's a testimonial spot. And one uh, side note, that's one of my most tested version of advertising. I hate those. But anyway, I really hated this one because this horrible man comes out, and he starts talking about, yeah, I shot some people. And the guy goes, well, they weren't real people, right? And the guy goes, no, they, wait, at least I think they weren't. <laughs> so this dumbass doesn't even know if he shot real people or not. But he's like, yeah, I had a good time. Okay, bye. <laughs> See, you went there. All I can think of is the guy coming behind him was the mm. Carl Winslow character from Die Hard just saying into the mic, <laughs> I shot a kid. <laughs> That's what I was waiting on. Right. Pardon me, sir. What is your name? Uh, Gardner Lewis. Just got back from Westworld. Tell us how you liked it, Mr. Lewis. When you played cowboys and Indians as a kid, you'd point your fingers and go bang, bang, and the other kid would lie down and pretend dead. Well, Westworld is the same thing, only it's for real. I, I shot six people. Well, uh, they weren't real people. What Mr. Lewis means is he shot six robots, scientifically programmed to look, act, talk, and even bleed, just like humans do. Now, isn't that right? Well, they may have been robots. I mean, uh, I think they were robots. I mean, I, I know they were robots. But, yeah. These people are... These people, yeah. This, I was shaking my horrible. head. They're horrible. My notes have it, like, shook my head the whole time, head mm -hmm. in my hand, wondering what the hell's going on. I didn't like any of these people, really. No. And they just all seem like rich a-holes to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And the guy, the last guy gets all excited because he married a princess, and that's been his dream since he was a kid. And there's all sorts of levels of weirdness going on with that. And, and it just, it felt like, I, and look, I guys, I will freely admit that I've never been one to really take the term white privilege and really use it heavily. But, man. Because that's your just, privilege. That uh, this just smacked of that, like like just entitlement of people. And, and yeah. let's be honest, that, with Crichton being so far ahead of himself in most things he covered, 
very mm-hmm. well could have been putting a microscope very early on something that he knew was coming. So Right. Yeah. And one thing that I thought of when this commercial came up and sort of the beginning of this movie and the setup for it, it really reminded me of Total Recall yeah. and the way they sell that service in the movie that, oh, you get to be anybody you want to be, you know. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. But instead of changing your mind... It changes the world around you, which is a very antiquated way to do things, I think. Or what about Sunny Flossed in Paradise from <laughs> Yes Fifth Element? Uh, Fifth Element. Oh exactly. man, yeah, there's a lot of parallels, man. <laughs> hey, we we right. we find the par- that's what we do here, guys. We find the lines mm-hmm. of inspiration completely unintentionally. <laughs> right. Well, then we move on to this really cool looking, like yes. boomerang shaped hovercraft. I loved this hovercraft. That was so cool. And the mm-hmm. music and the mood. That's what this, this transition from the commercial to this setup of mm-hmm. the very monotone almost, very mood, yes. uh, sounds. And you hear this hum, this nice electrical hum with the music and mm-hmm. time. And it just set this whole mood. Like I was kind of. You know, in the corner of my eye, I'm watching this thing open. I'm like, yeah, the commercial, whatever. And I was doing something. But as soon as that kicked in, it just drew my attention. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do this. It does just envelop you in that sort of, like you said, it's a monotone, bland, 70s aesthetic that they, they move forward into the sort of docking area. So basically, we have our two main characters, Peter Martin and John Blaine. And Peter is a newbie to this experience. And he's asking John all these questions about what guns feel like and what it's like to shoot someone. And um, John? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was about to say, yeah, John's real like nonchalant. He's almost like you feel like the part might have been John Wayne or maybe right. a uh, exactly. uh, Clint Eastwood where he's just kind of like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what you do. You shoot a guy. You ever handled a gun, <laughs> right. my friend? And it's like he's just the total chill, cool guy. Mm-hmm. But I know at least Peter. I don't. I don't know if they ever said John's occupation, but I know Peter was a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine that John was much different. And it seemed like John just wasn't happy in real life, and he loved to go here because he got to be the guy he wanted to be. Oh yeah, and he got to fulfill all those fantasies, which is what. Uh, Delos is for, and it's for the well-to-do to go do whatever the heck they want. Yeah, considering and it's a we see some of those other passengers. Yeah, you have to be well-to-do. In 1973, yeah, I didn't do the calculation, but that's that's a lot. But we see some of the other passengers, and they're watching a video. And there was a line in the video where they say they spared no expense, which was lifted directly out and placed in Jurassic Park. That was sort of John Hammond's uh, tagline. <laughs> I laughed till I heard it that I actually had to pause it at that part. I that, that one pulled me out. I'm like, oh my God, really? Right. And so one of the other <laughs> passengers is uh, this older white guy, like everybody there. But it was funny because they were talking about the different worlds and they talk about Roman world fulfilling all your desires. And he sort of looks over at who I presume is his wife with this disdain, like... Ah, oh, God, why did you have to come with me? <laughs> he definitely gave her the old battle axe look. I mean, it was, it, that was, and I have to say, I mean, that, that was one of the things I, it, it, again, let me paint with the broad brush stroke here, like I do occasionally. Mm-hmm. One of the things that entranced me about this film is, is that you never, you never felt like these guys were putting on airs almost. These right. felt like actual real people experiencing yes. something. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, right. Especially like, you know, the point you made with um, the John Blaine character. You see this evolution over the film of him opening up like a flower almost over this and his personality. Mm-hmm. He jokes more. He laughs more. His mannerisms change from the beginning yeah. of the film as you go through. Um, right up to the point we'll talk about later what happens to him. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, even, even that husband character, you see him kind of just, he's a little grumpy or whatever at the beginning mm-hmm. and you see his character evolve and it, it's so well done. The character evolutions they do, but I, I'm detracting. Wh- who, what else do we have uh, going from there? Well, one of the characters that my wife pointed out that I wasn't as familiar with was Dick Van Patten, who was the dad from eight is enough. He was the guy with the glasses who eventually became sheriff later on. Oh, I see. I knew I'd recognize that guy. <laughs> right. Like, I know this actor. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. One thing I noticed in this scene is uh, all through this process, the people don't talk to each other. And it really reminded me of like the internet because they don't want to interact with real humans. They want to wait and interact with the robots. Yeah. You know, they just want to be, you know, around people who are going to do whatever they say. And that could be also because of the, you know, economic status of these people they're probably used to people doing whatever they need to anyway and now they get to just live out their fantasies but there's a very important piece of information that's relayed right here when john says there's only one way you can tell what the robots are and it's their hands we are sure you will enjoy your stay in western was she uh probably that's amazing there are no rules supposedly you really can't tell Except by looking at the hands. Do not be afraid of hurting anything or of hurting yourself. They haven't perfected the hands yet. Nothing can go wrong. They also learn that the zones are color coded, and they get. There's this really cool graphic that they have that's sort of like a uh, a fan bla- a triple fan blade in three different colors. Yeah. And it represents the three zones that they're in. Right. And I really liked that. It was very 70s looking symbol. Very simple. Yeah, the the, the aesthetics in this, like, there was a lot of things that it, it evoked, like, you know, your Logan's Run and, and other things like mm-hmm. that. That, that, just, right. that great 70s style. And yeah, I mean, that through this whole film, it's like that. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, when they get to the uh, the docking area, it's just these tan walls everywhere. And the only pop of color is their little name tags and the people's jumpsuits which are color coordinated to the zone uh, they work for. And there's a voice that says, nothing can go wrong here, which is always a bad thing to say. Oh, it's yeah. just like saying, I'll be right back <laughs> in the horror movie. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, these are nothing state, could ever go wrong. These are state-of-the-art machines. No expense spared. Yeah, okay, no, we're going <laughs> to die a lot. Nothing can go wrong. You will enjoy your stay in Roman world. While you are there, please feel free to indulge your every whim. Medieval world exists for you, the guest. Nothing can go wrong. And so we go and and they suit up in their period dress and everything. To that end, though, just real quick, just jumping in on that on that suit up scene, I, mm-hmm. I fully expected more of a montage. I mean, it kind of was. Yeah. It kind of was a montage, but not in the true sense Ish. of like a pull on the boots, put on the put on yeah. the spurs, pass on the hat. You had these kind of sporadic. I'm at a locker yeah. and I'm putting this on. Was mm-hmm. it kind of this weird, it was almost very a humanizing thing of yeah. showing them with the lockers, showing the guy going down to his wife beater, um, mm-hmm. 
just very weird placement. It fit. It's not that it was out of right. place, but it was a little jarring at that point right. to see them just kind of be very normal and picking everything up. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you alluded to, that sort of adds to a little bit of uh, unease or uncomfortableness with who they are. And they're like, we don't want to be these people. We're just changing and we're going to get into this other world. And like you said, the, the lockers are very prominent. It's very much like some dudes in a country club that are suiting up before their golf game. And the funny thing, too, is there's not really a transition into Westworld no, because they just show them in the locker room getting dressed and then they show like a stagecoach driving by and all of a sudden they're in this world and Peter and John head up to their room and the old man comes in to their room and, and does some things for their room and John makes a play of tipping the guy and putting a coin in his hand and I don't know about you but it, it's really hard for me to tell that the hands are very Odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They make a point of point of, of saying like they're trying to specifically put focus to their right. hands are different and weird, but they don't. They didn't look that different. They they didn't even when they did these kind of zoom in shots where you see him mm-hmm. again turn his hand upside down and put it to the camera. If you're mm-hmm. looking, you see the hands are kind of bulbous on the end. Okay, right. But they're not shockingly different the way John right. describes it. Um. If I'm going to point any faults in the film, I would point to that. That was just a weird right. setup on that one. Not bad. I just agree. weirdly executed. Mm-hmm. And so we cut to this quick shot of Dick Van Patten. He's in his room and he's practicing drawing and he shoots the mirror out. <laughs> <laughs> we get a good luck on him as the comedy relief for the uh, movie. Oh, that was so good because you saw it coming. It's like he's ha. Right. Ha ha. <laughs> Ha ha And then Bam. here comes that fourth one. <laughs> Bam! Ha, 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 ha. What's going on? Oh my god, I'm like, oh, this is so good. So Peter and John head over to the saloon. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, you're getting to one of my favorite parts of this movie. Go ahead. Yeah. And this uh the bartender in this scene was one of the actors who had played in many, many westerns years and years before. Yeah. And Peter tries to order a martini. <laughs> It's like, dude, you're dressed like a cowboy. You're in a saloon. No. What the hell wait a are minute, you wait doing? A minute. He did not just try to order a martini. Oh, you're right. He, you're right. He said, <laughs> I'd like a martini, and I'd like this, and I'd like the twist of lemon on it. I'd like the little thing in the garnish. And the dude, his, John looks at him like, the hell? <laughs> he'll have whiskey, and he'll like it. What's wrong? Just drink your whiskey, you knucklehead. I'm going to slap you. That's a look he gave him. He barely said anything right. to him, but you got all of that out of it. And again, it goes back to these actors. I mean, these mm-hmm. these, these guys They're are good. good at what they do. They are. So, they really are. Yeah. Wow. What about me? Whiskey. What about you? Uh, vodka martini on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Very dry, please. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. John says again, it it may look rough, but it's a resort. No way to get hurt here. It's like, why do you keep saying that? (laughs) Oh, because they want to drill that into your head that they're about to rock that perception (laughs) real quick. You've got to get into the feel of the thing. I feel silly. Why? It's like a joke. It's not a joke. It's an amusement park. The best amusement park in the world. All you have to do is have fun. Some pretty rough-looking customers here. How many of them are... uh, Yes, like us? Who knows? That's the beauty of this place. It doesn't matter. It may look rough, but it's still just a resort. 
and then uh, Yul Brenner just comes in pushing Peter out of the way that was, to get to the. He didn't. Okay, so Yul Brenner is this big Billy badass of an actor. I mean, he is just. It's Yul Brenner, guys. Big bald dude that I, has guns. I mean, you look at like black you hat, look at so. Ten Commandments. You look at The King and I. And it's Yule, bald-headed, bigger-than-life Brenner coming in and see. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't make any pomp, any circus. He just muscles mm-hmm. his way in and psh, checks him mm-hmm. and goes to the bar. And I'm like, that's Yule Brenner. Yeah. I purposely didn't do any research before I watched it the first time. Really? So I would be it. You didn't know that? I had no idea. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's Yule Brenner. <laughs> that's so cool. I- I'm both feet in now. What I love most about him is his voice. And yes. he just goes up there and he goes, sloppy with your drink. <laughs> <laughs> because he's just made Peter spill all of his drink everywhere. And he's got it right to his lips. And just before uh-huh. he's about to shut, sloppy with your drink. Drink. Mm-hmm. Sloppy with your drink. Give this boy a bib. Yeah. Go on. He needs his mama. Kill him. You talk too much. You say something, boy. I said you talk too much. I had to make me shut up. He's, He's like, okay. He is the I'm here best. to rattle you. And um, John immediately is like, you gotta kill that guy. You gotta kill that guy. Oh, you gotta you kill that guy. Face? You gotta kill him now. Do you love his face? Not John's face, <laughs> yeah. but Peter's face when he Peter, said it. Yeah. He just got this, like, <laughs> pallor, like, I'm not- I can't. Right. I can't. Oh, he's a robot. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't understand. Right. And it's funny because, you know, he shoots him and this is the first, uh, instance of the gratuitous slow-mo in this movie. There was a ton of slow-mo. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I, I felt like I was it watching. It was on the edge of me not liking it. Oh man, no, it. no, it no, no, no. Gratuitous. I was a fan of Six Million Dollar Man, man. So <laughs> okay. this was like, yes, this is cool. But one thing I I don't want to pass over is Yul Brenner, when he sort of gets ticked off, you see his eyes go sort of silver, which jokingly in my mind, I was referencing Riddick and the shine that he put on his eyeballs. (laughs) I was thinking, man, I bet he can see in the dark, you know, (laughs) and I want to see that movie, Riddick versus the Gunslinger. Oh, that would be epic. I mean, that would be cool. Oh, that would be so cool. Well, to the, to, <laughs> to, to, talking about the silver shine to the eyes, though, the, the mm-hmm. little audio stinger they put in and the, the yes. turn toward the light and the, the change, I could mm-hmm. not tell. And I, I watched a couple of commentaries and I tried to get in there and find it. I could not tell definitively, definitively if they had put contacts on these actors to make it stand out or if it was just a right. light trick to get mm-hmm. that shine to their face without putting a full glow on them. But right. the effect was it's pretty amazing. Awesome for something and so simple. And the fact simple. that you can't tell. No, you can't. You can't tell how they did it. And then they, right. they just they, you and you hear that audio stinger that no 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 and mm-hmm. then like you see the person physically react to it. Right. Every time they do it, you see somebody they get that mm-hmm. that uncanny valley happens for right them. Mm-hmm. and it's just again for a movie made this i, I don't want to rag on it i don't want to f- sound like i'm making fun of films of this era but for the time for the tech they had and for what the amount of money they put into it it sh- really shines through and you get that great unease mm-hmm. out of these actors and it's awesome awesome scene right. setting mm-hmm. um so after we get the shine we have the like you say your super slow-mo and uh <laughs> he, he 
it almost felt like that's when he pulled the gun and he finally did it. Like mm-hmm. you could almost see that the you like at first I thought, oh, they slowed it down. Yul Brenner's pulling his shot, but then when you really think about it, it's like, yeah, he of course he is. Mm-hmm. Of course he's pulling his shot. Of course he's going to purposely react slower. Right. The right. person on the other side of him is a guest, not right. a gunslinger. He has mm-hmm. to kill the quote unquote bad guy. Right. So it makes perfect sense that that happened in that way. Right. And he, I think it's pretty obvious he doesn't operate with the uh, Asimov rules of a robot, but it does seem that they program them to not, I mean, they repeatedly say uh, they, they can't harm guests. Right. And so obviously they, they do program them and you're right. They probably have to pull punches and, and not do things as quickly. And um, one, one thing that stood out in this scene, uh, especially the second time I watched the film is it almost seems like John is conditioning himself and his friend to be actual killers because they are killing human-like beings yeah. that they almost can't tell. And that seems like such a dangerous game. Oh, I mean, it goes without man. saying, I huh. guess, and the that's mo- the point the, of the movie. Would it be the most but, dangerous game? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Huh? Hey, You're you welcome. got me on that You're one. welcome. <laughs> so to that end, though, Levi, when you... When you think about it, do you think maybe that some of uh, the inspiration for Hostel may have come from some of the scenes like this where you've got, you know, you you see kind of a setup of if these weren't robots and these Mm -hmm. men were doing this kind of thing, you could kind of see maybe some of the inspiration of like a hunting lodge or something like that where you have this thing like Hostel where they're killing people. So, yeah, definitely. 100% agree. I could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. creepy parallels. Creepy parallels. (laughs) It is creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then we go back and uh, John and Peter are in their room and Peter's worried about actually shooting someone and and John explains that you can't because the guns won't fire at anything with warmth because the robots are cold. And um, Peter says, well, they thought of everything. And I'm thinking, did they? Because you could shoot all kinds of things that are cold that would lead to a reaction that would hurt someone. Oh, yeah. You could also throw a chair at someone or push them down some stairs. They do. They They straight up There's a bar fight later on that gets pretty rowdy. We'll get there. We'll get there. I've got some things to (laughs) say about that fight. Okay. We'll try to go in order. (laughs) But um, here we get our first shot of Medieval World where there's wenching and eating galore. And it's basically a Renfest circa 1972. They've got their huge 70s quote-unquote period dress on and their lute playing. It looks like the set of a of a of an Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie. <laughs> exactly. And actually, it's funny you say that because Michael Crichton mentioned Errol Flynn oh movies. Oh my god. Yes, okay. in one of his com- his interviews. Perfect. So, bravo, bravo. Perfect. <laughs> the big vaulted ceilings like they did yes. in that and oh yeah that was that's awesome that's awesome right. but uh we get kind of just a quick shot of that and then we go back to john and peter and john and peter are eating dinner and john says where would someone go for some companionship entertainment and uh they hear that they need to go see miss carrie at the saloon miss carrie <laughs> okay go ahead i'm not no i won't no i'm gonna <laughs> we be good see this <laughs> we see this woman at the bar and there are two other ladies kind of giggling into their hands. And um, so D- John starts up the interaction. Levi, I think these might be saloon girls. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter, Peter is quite concerned that they're not girls at all. He, d- he 
wants to know if they're machines okay. or not. Okay, this is the part where I kind of had a little bit of a disconnect here because this is this is the part that I'm kind of like, really, dude? Okay, mm-hmm. so John comes here. John's been. John's mm-hmm. tasted the pleasures of this place, sure. So to speak. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but what, what baffled me about Peter's character is that in order to go to something like this. Well, <laughs> cart, horse. Uh, oh, sorry. No, but he, it just, it felt like he just almost has this blissful ignorance. Like, I guess mm-hmm. maybe the, the thing they're trying to play up is maybe that he's a rich kid himself or so removed from the world from his thing that he doesn't think about certain things. Okay, I can get that from right. the character. But how would you not think about a <laughs> resort where you're like, you have all this pre-knowledge of, oh, do they, do you have real guns? Do you shoot? And you get mm-hmm. that. But like, why would you not know that there's robots for, uh, you know, the, the horizontal yeah. mambo. I mean. Exactly. That would be a thing. That would be on the brochure. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Especially if it was. Can you imagine if this resort opened today? <laughs> <laughs> it, the brochures that would be. Um, even released, as progressive which... as we've gotten to right now. I can't even. I can't even <laughs> fathom that. But uh, we'll get to that, too, uh, in our wrap up, because we can talk a little bit about the HBO show that's actually premiering tonight. I can't on wait. HBO. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. So they go up for their companionship, and right as they're going up, there's a bank robbery outside, and Peter wants to join in on the fun, but John says, oh, ho, ho, no, this is much better. And so John clearly wants to murder people like things and have sex with robots. And <laughs> yeah, Peter uh, <laughs> Peter wants to have a little bit more variety in his fun, but uh, he, he follows John's prompting. And apparently this film in its first cut was really long and uh michael crichton decided to cut i think there was actually a bank robbery scene and he decided to cut it to to keep the film moving on so to that end i kind of feel like he made the right choice in that i do too because we and we're gonna get to a little more explanation of that scene in fact i'm gonna hold the i'm gonna hold the comment for when we get to that scene i've got i got something to say about that portion when we come to that and explain what peter was referencing so okay um but yeah they they go ahead upstairs and uh uh peter starts his little Oh, <laughs> and this, I had to, I laugh. I'm like, okay, I shouldn't be laughing. I guess part of this is kind of funny, but at the same time, it's supposed to be very yeah. innocent. Um, uh-huh. Am I wrong in thinking that Peter, other than this robot, had never been with a woman? Am, did he, well, did no, it seem because like he that? has two children. Oh, that's true. But it yeah, just, yeah. it no, I think felt he was, like that's I think was the robot thing at. was throwing him off. And I think they they were sort of making a parallel with having sex for the first time versus having sex with a robot for the first time. Right. And saying that that, that is terribly awkward. And I thought it was funny because he's lounging on this bed and he sort of, to me, looked like a really awkward version of Burt Reynolds because he's got the mustache <laughs> and he's kind of leaning back like that famous picture of Burt Reynolds. Oh, now I want a shirt and... with that pose of him on it. It just says awkward Burt Reynolds. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be one of the shir- first shirts we make, guys. Awkward Burt. Oh, right. my God. And then Peter says, I feel funny. And then he has sex with a robot. And apparently the robot's O face is that high pitched <laughs> noise with their silver eyeballs because that's exactly what happens. You did not just she, say that. Yes, she she just stares off into space and goes, oh my and her God. eyeballs turn silver. I really hope he was enough into the moment that he did not pay attention to that because that's the last thing. Like I would not be telling the story at the water cooler later. Because no. yeah, she was, and then she made this really weird noise. It was really. 
kind of right. off-putting. I'm going to go back to my desk now, Steve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we don't need to know about that. Jeez. <laughs> uh, there, uh, there is something I have to tell you. I, I don't know if it matters, but it matters to me. <clears throat> I, uh, I haven't ever had a, uh, uh, well, I, I hardly know you, if you know what I mean. I mean, uh, we just met a few minutes ago, and, uh, you're probably very nice. I feel funny. So the next part is really disturbing because you go out to the, and I think it's probably what you're talking about, Yeah. but you go out and it's night and there are all these bodies strewn across the street, just everywhere. It is a jarring transition. Yeah. It's so, because you see, you know, the pleasures of this place, which is them being intimate with robots and all that business. But then you cut to the flip side of what they want, which is to kill people and there's just bodies everywhere and a van comes out and sets up a floodlight and basically they load up all the bodies even the horses they load up to that end two two things mm-hmm. on that. first thing is is it, going back to the point i was going to make earlier i really felt like this was a great piece of editing here because mm-hmm. the jarring piece of it was such a juxtaposition from what you were seeing before and i right. think Crichton's choice of not showing what would have happened and you just hear the noises and you kind mm-hmm. of infer and then bam you've got this massive string right. of bodies outside and it's this great setup to it that you honestly mm-hmm. don't see coming but is thematically just perfect stringing to it so second piece right. on that is that when these guys come out you almost felt like the scene was dovetailing into a they mentioned a a, a, a bank robbery and then he has this nice moment and you think mm-hmm. almost like it's going to go to nighttime and then we'll be in the next day and things are subtle and again the same setup is, you know, jarring straight out to the body, straight out right. to the street. And it's this great piece of, of just well shot, well lit because that those, mm-hmm. those lights just start. It's almost like stark reality sets in yeah. for the right. audience to say, boom, guess what? We're putting a spotlight on the real thing that's happening here. It was just awesome. Exactly. That was awesome framework yeah. on their part. Exactly. It was great. And, Right after that, they take the bodies to this barn and they put them on this conveyor belt. And there was a really awesome shot of them taking the bodies out of the van and putting them on a conveyor belt. Yes. Set against a pitch black background. No detail in the background. And they go down this uh, conveyor belt and they go into the waiting arms of what look like doctors. They're wearing, you know, the masks scrubs, and the scrubs and everything. And the whole nine yards, yeah. It's kind of like a, a clean room, I guess, because it's where they do repairs to the robots. And this is where we're introduced to the chief supervisor, played by Alan Oppenheimer. And he's doing his supervisorly duties, and he's telling people, get a permission to do that, and put that further up in the cavity, and I, things I like that. I love that that kind of start, that technobabble that they right. did. It was very... <laughs> It, it didn't feel out of place because in some in some movies when they get into the oh the transistor for the thing I'm like it's like mm-hmm. mm, out of place and here very apropos 
Right. Because people don't talk in that much detail during their day because each person knows what they're talking about. And I think that also helps move the narrative along because we don't need a detailed explanation of exactly what they're doing. We just know, oh, they're repairing the robots. And um, one thing I noticed in this scene is the robots from the way they talked about them and the repairs that they were supposedly doing to them, it seemed like they were very much designed from the top down that they wanted a robot that looked like a human. And they tried to shove everything in there as opposed to how robotics has gone, which is creating something that uh, mimics the actual structure of a walking being and then trying to make it look more like a human, you know, kind of building metal bones and things like that. Instead of starting at the fourth iteration and trying to make it function like back to the original. Yeah. Basically a shell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we get to a little more in depth talk. The chief supervisor goes into this uh, big wig meeting and they're talking about, they have a failure rate, which at the beginning It was okay. It was within parameters, which was 0.3% failure in a 24-hour period. But then three weeks ago, they started having issues, and it started in Roman world, and it started spreading like a disease. And this is actually the first mention of a computer virus in a movie. Really? And yeah. That's really cool. I didn't know that. It's the first time that this sort of thing had been referred to in terms of a virus. And that's really cool. This is a theme actually in Crichton's work, you know, things yeah. getting viruses or, or, yeah. uh, technology failing. Well, you, you think about, you think about like writers and things where, where they pull their inspiration and where they gravitate to. A lot of them gravitate to their own fears. So right. I felt in a lot of, of Crichton's things, he, he, Everything I think kind of comes back to almost a viral infection because it feels like the breakdown or decay of the functionality of something, whether it's from a virus or some mm-hmm. insidious internal mechanism, is really where a lot of the functionality of his stuff comes from. And you see that super prevalent in this film. Right. Um, and it's really cool. I mean, it, 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 and I think that plays on – it shows his writing because he's kind of playing on a primal fear that we right. – everybody can identify with. Mm-hmm. And even more so today with our investments in technologies yeah. when it becomes more of a reality. And our dependency and, on it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there was one line in here that really stood out to me as a fan of Michael Crichton's work is that they mentioned that some of the machines were designed by other machines, so they don't actually understand how they work. And this concept he put forth, I believe it was the Terminal Man and... The Terminal Man, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's basically, from what I remember, this guy has really debilitating blackouts, and uh, he has seizures and then a blackout, and he can't remember what he does, and he does really violent things, so he gets these electrodes implanted in his brain, and they sort of send pleasure impulses when he has these and they actually make him do really, really bad things. So anyway, that's sort of the rundown of that movie. But there's a point in the movie where Michael Crichton actually goes into a pretty long description of uh, computer technologies and the fact that we are creating computers and machines that can design other machines that we don't in turn understand and that we can devise machines and programs to understand what our brain does, even if we can't understand it. So I thought it was cool that one of those ideas got put into this movie. 
and and very well done as well. I mean, I get mm-hmm. you, you guys are probably going to hear me say that a lot because I was genuinely shocked because I, I've watched a lot of other movies and sci-fi films of this era and other eras. And I was just floored by how much I just thoroughly love this film and, mm-hmm. and how well all the pieces come together. Even when, honestly, you've got a panning shot of a light board with a bunch of just blinky lights on it. <laughs> right. But when you put all the pieces together, it works so well. You feel like you're there with them. And the, 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 again, when they transition to this scene, this setup of let's do kind of the techie explanation and get behind the scenes. I thought I was going to get bored. Let's be honest. Right. This is about the part where people would, but no, I was, I was both feet in. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, explain it to me. I want to know. Tell me more. Tell me how you started this thing. Talk about the founder. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hear these things. So, yeah, it was very just, oh, man, just I want to keep repeating myself here, but so well done. <laughs> so well it was, done. For sure. And in fact, to that note, we find out in this next scene that nothing in the park is really automated. We have all these guys at switchboards and they're talking to people and saying, okay, we'll start the carriage now and we'll start dancing. And they press a button and the horse starts walking and the fountain turns on. And I think that sort of underlines that this is an amusement park and that these robots are just property. There's nothing autonomous about them at this point, or they don't feel there is. Did you feel like it would have been just hilarious if they'd have had like just one scene of just the one guy that's up through the night walking around yeah. going? <laughs> that would have been me. They're like, why isn't this working? Like, right. You're supposed to be in bed, dude. What are you doing? Right. Go to. I had that thought when they showed all the bodies because I was thinking, well, what if I got up in the middle of the night and wanted to just have a cup of coffee on the frontier, you know, and I see this van <laughs> driving by with all these bodies falling out of the back. It, would, it might break the illusion. A little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so after this, we get a shot of John and Peter. They're sort of, I think Peter's uh, shaving in the bathroom. And no, 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 no. He's old timey shaving. Old timey shaving, exactly, <laughs> with a straight razor and a little whatever kind of hairbrush. <laughs> no, a, no bix old, past this point. Oh, oh, horse hairbrush. There you go. <laughs> but we see the gunslinger is slinking his way into John's room, and he's actually holding him at gunpoint. And Peter hears this, and we have another slow mo sequence. There's a woman that's across the hall that Peter sees, and she just screams her head off. And we have a funny shot of Peter jumping into the room and shooting Yul Brenner as he flies through the air like that guy. Chow Yun-Fat. Yeah, no. <laughs> he cartwheels through the air, yeah. through the window, <laughs> bloody mess on the ground outside, over the top. And then Peter looks at him, he stops, he goes... That guy giving you any trouble? <laughs> yes. Won't be giving you any trouble anymore. <laughs> like, really, Peter? Right. When did you go drink a bottle of I'm awesome? What are you doing? Get out of here, Peter. Was he bothering you? He's going to bother you again. We see the, the blood on Yul Brenner, which I don't know if it was supposed to look that fake, but it looked really, really fake. It looked like they just threw red blood on him. But when, here's the thing. When you look at other characters later in the film, when certain things happen, the blood doesn't look as predominant right. and stand out. So I think, yet again, I think you're finding something that was very purposely done. Enhance the illusion. To make it look over the top. Exactly. Right. To give oh, that, that, that theater effect to everything. That's a great point. But after this, we get the illusion shattered again when Peter, or maybe enhanced, when Peter gets thrown in jail. 
And <laughs> the transition is great because he's like, "Yeah, I'm awesome," and then boom, clink. he's in the he's in the clink, right? And it's like, what? And the sheriff explains that things have changed, and I was wondering if maybe this was a little bit of evidence of this disease that was affecting the robots that they were sort of. Because I can't imagine that this resort where they control everything, they're like, okay, this guy shot someone, so we got to put him in jail. You know what I mean? Some of it, I think, I, I think it could go that route. But I, the way I interpreted it, interpreted it was that they actually had done a little pre-pro on this because of the mm. way that John reacts to the whole thing oh. of chit-chatting to him, of giving the Indian woman the extra note, okay. of playing it out because it was kind of a, a, a play for them. I think John may have had a little bit of a hand in the setup because okay. there are parts of the movie later uh, when they were in Medieval World <clears> – <throat> Where the wife ta- uh, uh, talks to the husband of saying, right. oh, he favors his left. And on the fly, these guys are saying, hey, put that in the program right, data. True. That he's that. So I think maybe there was a conversation at one point of like, hmm, I wonder if there's a, uh, if you could go to jail, John. And John's like, nah, I don't know. Maybe he like kind of looks at mm-hmm. where the camera is and winkity, winkity, wink. Right. And they set it up. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I thought there was a very telling conversation here, though, in the broader sort of uh, moral framework of the of the story, where Peter says to the sheriff, I haven't done anything wrong. And the sheriff says, well, you shot someone. And to that robot. And the robot, way he said it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the way he, he believes delivered that. it. It's like, you shot a man. Right. You know? He believes it. I mean, that's, yeah. and it could just be the programming on the robot, but I thought it, it spoke well to the theme of the movie, which is sort of... Well, I think there's a lot of themes in this movie, but I feel like one of them is how we use robots to get what we want. And when they start becoming sentient or intelligent, at what point are we using them in a way that is not appropriate, morally speaking? And I thought that sort of brought that up. And before we move on, I want to bring up, okay, so nothing can hurt you in this world, but you can have freaking dynamite. Exactly. That, to that blow was the, a that, wall. That was exactly the same thing I said. I said, I mean, he could have killed Peter right there. Yes. I, and I, Does just, Peter know how to use dynamite? I mean, I, anyway, we'll move on because that makes no sense. Yeah, that one, again, that was a plot hole as big as the hole they blew in the wall. Right. And more <laughs> evidence of John being just a freaking sociopath, I feel, is he just runs up and shoots the sheriff. Yeah. No warning. He just shoots him. Well, you look at his face. I mean, that, uh-huh. at that point, I mean, I think, you know, like I'd alluded to earlier is you see him. And I don't want to say blossom because it feels like his character's growth and all this. Right. No, you just see the, the, the petals unfolding to show the nutsoid underneath. Right. Exactly. Um, and it, it just more and more and it builds and builds. Right. And it gets quote unquote worse and worse as you get further in the film. Right. So Peter and John sort of go on the lamb and they become desperados. They say. They're out on the planes doing something. And uh, we go back to the control room and we get some of that interaction that you were talking about where they, you know, they see what happens with the guests and they say, okay, well, we need to do this later. So you know that they are, quote unquote, in control. They're always adjusting things. Right, right. And uh, the queen mentions a weakness in the left eye of the night. And I was wondering about that. Because they control these characters, but she said something that he didn't seem to know. At that part in the film, I did not know that that queen character in the purple dress was a robot. 
I thought, and I could not remember properly, that that was that guy's wife. And I thought that's what the lead up was. But you find out later that's in the, the queen, film yeah. that that's the, the queen, not the, not the character's wife. Because the, 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 the character himself, that, that, um, guest is <clears throat> supposed to be playing a noble lord or the king, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And he is, when he talks to her, I thought he was talking to his wife. But a no, little later the in the scene, and we'll get there. Yeah, you find out that's a robot. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that was jarring for me. Like, why would she have said that? But that comes right. back to what you're saying. It's those slow changes in that that the right. scientists aren't picking up. Right. Exactly. And it's that slow uh, virus that's leaking into everything and slowly turning everything more dangerous just ever so slightly. It's the, the principle of the uh, – you put the frog in some water – and you mm-hmm. slowly turn up the water to boil, and before the water, before the frog even knows it, he's boiling alive because he doesn't exactly. know how to get out of the water. And that's exactly what's happening to the guests and the control oh, room. Man. Like, let's be honest, that, that actor did kind of look like a frog. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, but then we have a, a really funny scene with uh, Dick Van Patten. <laughs> he comes up, and I'm taking over a sheriff of these parts now. And we hear this from the control room. Yes, he can be sheriff anytime he wants. That is correct. Just give him the badge. And so he's huffing and puffing out there as the sheriff, and he turns around and can't even open the door to the building. Because <laughs> he's a he's a 20-pound weakling. And then we have uh, another quick insert shot. Of, we kind of bounce back and forth in the movie. So we have a quick shot of the medieval guy. He runs into this uh, wench-made, I don't know, chambermaid named Daphne. And he sort of introduces himself to her. And then Peter and John get attacked by a rattlesnake right. in the desert. And right. uh, it had been so long since I've seen the movie, I couldn't remember if the rattlesnake was real or not. And they're kind of freaking out. And they shoot horribly at it. They can't hit anything because they can't and really shoot. <laughs> that was part of, for me, for what it was, too. It's just like that at that moment, I've kind of fully put some of the pieces I didn't get together at the beginning of the film mm. that, honestly, sh- I should have caught. Right. Every single animal in this world, every single animal you see is an animatronic. The horses, right. any rabbits, uh, birds, mm-hmm. all of it are animatronics. The only living, quote-unquote, things there are the guests. Right. And I, that... When when that when that scene happened and that snake went rogue and bit him, that clicked and I went, "Oh my god, that's terrifying!" Right, right. You're in a stew of you know metal that wants to kill you. Exactly. <laughs> you can scare a snake off. Mm-hmm. You can shoo a bird away. But if it's they're all machines and they've turned, mm-hmm. you're done. Right. But my my broader question is. Um, they go to a scene of the control room and say, oh my god, a snake bit a guest. They're not programmed to harm a guest. And I'm thinking, if you want snakes that don't harm a guest, why not make their teeth out of silicone or something? He had metal fangs, the snake. Yeah. Because they yeah. bring the snake, a guy in a golf cart goes out and gets the snake from the I desert and brings it back in. That, that again, was another, it's all, it, an almost plot hole, but mm-hmm. then you think about it like, it, it, the it's idea arrogance. that, like, exactly, it's that arrogance. It's it comes back to that line again. If we're going to quote Goldblum, because mm-hmm. it is apropos, you thought so much of could you do a thing mm-hmm. instead of should you do a thing, right? Exactly, and that's very prevalent here. Is their, their designs are just like you go, what the deuce? Mm-hmm. There's also another sort of illusion, I think, to 
or that Jurassic Park draws from this film where the chief supervisor goes by after he's talking about the snake and he picks up a phone and it doesn't work and he goes, doesn't anything work around here? And I'm right. pretty sure that line was in Jurassic Park <laughs> in a very similar Samuel, situation. Samuel L. Jackson. Yep. <laughs> um, but anyway, we get this other really subtle hint, like you were talking about, that they say, oh, the air conditioner's not working in section B. And um, it's sort of your first clue that something's going wrong, not just in the park, but in the control room as well. Mm, we're going to get, when we get to that scene that, that, that we're alluding to here, oh, I've got some things to say. Okay. This is, this is where my illusion fell apart. Now, again, doesn't affect my overall feel of the movie, but oh my God. Mm, I'm going to say some things. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we get this quick insert shot of uh, or scene of this medieval guy. He's making googly eyes at Daphne from across the room in this crowded lunchroom. And then we go to <laughs> to Westworld and the control guys go, okay, initiate bar fight sequence. And they start this really cartoonish Hollywood bar fight that you've oh, seen in man. every John like, Wayne movie. <laughs> it was like Tex Avery showed up and just started orchestrating the whole right. thing. All right, let's start that bar fight. Cheat! <laughs> and it had all the little moments where Peter and John are playing cards, and he's like, well, do you want to join this? And all of a sudden, some dude gets flung into their obviously fake table, and they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll join in. And <laughs> Peter just throws his cards down, yeah. all like, like, dang it! <laughs> he gets into it. <laughs> and this is another scene, I'm like... How could you say you couldn't get hurt? Because exactly. these people get thrown around, they get punched, oh. they fall. And they get up giggling. Yes. They get up giggling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you just got socked in the mouth by a robot. By a metal robot, right. I. How do you get up? <laughs> that was fun. Your jaw is probably displaced, dude. Right. You lost a tooth. <laughs> And and it seems like everything is made to fall apart, like the railing just gives way immediately. And you have to think that it's like all trick railing. They just pull a string and it all pops back into place or something right. for the next guest. <laughs> but then we go back to this operating room and they're opening up uh, Yul Brynner's face, the gunslinger, and we get kind of our first shot of the, the cool skull of the robot. That scene, in seeing it again, coming in fresh, not knowing anything established about this film, I 100% understand why that's part of the poster art. Mm-hmm. I 100% understand when uh, people reference this film right. and make artwork and make things and talk about this, that scene and how poignant that was mm-hmm. for like a reveal and a show because you, it's almost visceral where you go – this very established, well-known actor, they dismantle him. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, God. Right. And it's a visceral reaction you have to it. It's very cool. It is. And another important thing they did here was um, the technician tells the supervisor, I'm putting in the new infrared unit and increasing the audio sensitivity. So they're making this robot more effective. Right. So that's an important point. And then we go to medieval times again to see a quote-unquote malfunction (laughs) i would call it something else but basically this guy wants daphne to provide him his pleasure and she refuses and he presses the issue and that killed me i'm like what is even happening right now and he's like oh oh but my dear and i'm like Wait, no, stop. She said no. Right. She said no. She said no. Right. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does mm-hmm. not even matter. She's a robot. Right. Stop. Stop. Oh, my 
God. And that goes back to what I was saying about John conditioning himself. That's the danger of this place where no one can say no, is that, first of all, you think, oh, well, you're supposed to do whatever I say. And then second of all, if you keep up that attitude, you're going to act that way towards people. And I, I, I can't see anyone that goes here, except maybe people like Peter, who've been once and are kind of like weirded out by the situation, not being affected by this. So you could almost create that further corollary. Earlier in this, you made mention of how we uh, – this almost feels like the way we approach the internet, right? Right. Um, that's very apropos because with the uh, anonymity – that the current version and iteration of how we interact with technology and the internet and this connectivity gives us a lack of a face, as it were. Right. Uh-huh. Lack of a face. Uh, oh. Um, you're welcome. Uh, Thanks. It, it breeds that same thing. You can see a literal, real-world allegory to the things that Michael Crichton and other writers were trying mm-hmm. to point out with the advancement of technology. You get behind a wall or a veneer or this piece where you're separated from humanity mm-hmm. and you lose your humanity. Right. Exactly. Oh, this movie's so deep. I love it. It is. It is. And it, it is amazing all the things that, you know, Michael Crichton sort of sets out there and they are, you know, in many, our culture still. Many years ago. Many years mm-hmm. ago. And they're still prescient. So we move on to the control room and the op confirms that Daphne is a sex robot and that's her you know, main function and she is malfunctioning because she's refusing. But I think looking at it from the lens of today, you're seeing sentience and she's saying, wait, I don't want that. And I think that's what Michael Crichton wants us to think, you know, like she's actually coming into her own as a personality and she doesn't want to do this. And that's where it comes in the question of at what point are we being morally uh, bankrupt by just doing whatever we want with these beings that exactly. we're Exactly. We, we made it so we can do what we want, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Where's the line? That's, right. oh yeah, this movie is so good. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of cut back and forth a couple times between the medieval guy, he's putting on his clothes and he says, oh, I'm going to go to breakfast. I think he actually says it out loud to no yeah. one in particular. <laughs> like, who are you, do what you're talking to, frog guy, come on. <laughs> right. And uh, we get a shot of Peter and John and they're waking up in the saloon. Like you're saying, they're giggling about it and... Um, I would be horrified. Uh, of course, oh I'm sort God. of a wimp, the, but <laughs> the, the 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 shot of the two of them just like one of them's laid out on the floor, <laughs> the other one's propped up against the bar, and they're both just kind of like, Ugh, oh man, hey, what a night, huh? And it's right? Like, no, 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 no. You don't get to say I drank a bunch of whiskey and uh-huh. got into co- and and, and kind of caroused at a bar. You had a full on bar fight. One of you was hit with a chair. The other yes. one was put through a table. Right. You don't come back from that. Right. But it was all balsa wood, so I guess it's fine. That's why they're fine. <laughs> I want a balsa wood chair now. The funny thing is we go back to the medieval guy, and he's not going to breakfast. He's just going to the empty empty dining hall to just get some food because he's a fat right? dude. And, you know, I'm going to say that because I'm a fat dude, so I can use that term. <laughs> but <laughs> that's my term. But anyway, the, the Black Knight comes out saying, Yay, Varlet! And, and things of that sort. Are you speaking to me? None other, sir. Uh, Look, I'm hungry, and I... Prepare for thy doom, thy scurrilous knave, huh? Wait a minute. Uh, Can't we talk this over? What, have you no spine, Garnet? Well, I... Uh It really felt... I mean, you've said medieval times a couple of times... (laughs) 
That yeah. felt like this was like some scripted thing out of medieval Super times. Super medieval times. It's funny because this fight starts and the, it cuts back to the control room. The guy's sitting there eating a sandwich, just sort of right? watching it happen. <laughs> and uh, in this scene, they kind of cut back and forth between medieval world and Westworld. But we'll we'll stick with medieval world for right now. Uh, basically, the Black Knight gets in a fight with a medieval guy and... The guy fights for a little bit. He really does. I was impressed because it's like, it's like, dude, he's giving that Black Knight one four for a minute there. Yeah, dude, get at him. Mm-hmm. But there, there's sort of a turn in the fight where uh, yeah, th- the Black Knight is not tiring because he's a robot. And the other guy is very winded and he keeps like, he. I think he like jumps on the table and he's kind of running, walking down the table. And at that point, yeah. I would have been like, screw this. I'm leaving. Um but he kind of keeps fighting and the knight backs him into a corner and slices his arm and stabs him in the gut. And the queen is just sitting there watching. Yeah. And, and that's the part that at that moment when she, when he pops him in the chest, I'm going, is she going to scream or, Oh, that's a robot. Right. That's mm-hmm. where I had that revelation. Of like, okay. Yeah. She's, but when, when he, when he did stab him though, you didn't see the guy do that whole movie arg or right. any of that. You genuinely saw this. He was surprised. Did I? Right. Did I just get, oh my God. And it, and it looked, it was very, again, very well done, very mm-hmm. well shot, wasn't very cheesy. Right. Um, but you, it, it was just this instantaneous jarring right out of the scene. Right. It's like, oh my God. He just, he just stabbed that guy. Yeah. I agree. He, produced a very realistic reaction it wasn't hollywoodized and i think they did a good job because they had to otherwise it just all runs together and i think the real performances from these actors now that you mention it is what really makes this movie stand out because you have the hollywoodized version of these three places on screen and you're saying this is blatant this is fake so you need that very earnest acting style and that definitely sells this scene they absolutely deliver it too. Mm-hmm. they absolutely deliver it and the of course the control room starts freaking out and they they yell to shut down the power to the robots and and now we've gotten to the part where i have a problem okay tell me they say cut the power to everything and they do and they say it must be the independent power sure okay okay sure 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 and then the guy tells him well, it, it, they're going to have X amount of time of uh, uh, autonomy. They're going to still be active for this time. Okay, cool. I'm still on board. Then the guy points out the issue with the doors. Mm-hmm. And I almost had a coronary because he says they're electronically locked. Whose idea was it to rig everything to the doors? Guys, guys, there is no expletive way. Anyone would have designed those doors to be on the same power relays as both the <laughs> remainder of the park, right? The air circulation systems. Mm-hmm. Just, I was totally at that point jarred out of the film. I had to pause it and go, no, 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 no one does this. Well, point of order, Gil. Um, I'll, I'll give you a devil's advocate situation here. What if the virus that started with the robots had somehow affected these systems? Of course, well, I get what you're saying, though. You're saying it was designed poorly. Um, but it could be possible that they were separate, but uh, somehow they got tampered with 
or I don't know. It it kind of takes on a conspiracy, you know, size. Yeah. No, when no, you no. Say I, see, that. I see what you. I see what you mean, though, because it, right. it almost feels like the only thing it could have been is 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 a multiple across the board systematic failure. Not just a, mm-hmm. but it just felt weird that they go the doors won't open and there's no air circulation right. here. What kind of hermetic jar were you <laughs> right. creating out out of these control exactly. rooms? Well, because these weren't clean rooms. They they weren't. They were they underground. Were other though. Clean rooms. That's the true. entire That's structure true. was underground. I didn't think about that. You're right. So they need so air pumped in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And they had that. Remember at the end, they have the big manhole cover that he had to open to get under there. So it was all sealed. But we'll go back to Westworld now. And we see that the gunslinger is watching uh, Peter and John stumble out of the saloon. And he basically tells him to draw in the street. And he has this look on his face like he's having a really good time. That was awesome. That setup on that scene was amazing because you get these two, the, the two, they're still groggy. They're like, and he even makes the comment to him. He's like, man, I don't want to deal with this today. I've shot this guy twice. He's like, you mind if I take it? Go ahead, dude. Go ahead, John. Go <laughs> ahead. And John, you know, Mr. Chipper, like, hey, yeah, come on. Brenner draws on this guy. Boom, boom. Yep. Boom, boom, boom. And puts him down. Yeah. And, and the, the, the reaction again, that just genuine. Peter, I've been shot. Yeah, he even and says he that. Hits the ground, and it's like you feel what Peter feels because mm-hmm. you see this horror come over Peter's face. He's like, "Holy shnikes!" This right. guy just, and then he looks at him, and you see again. <laughs> it's like you say that smile comes over his <laughs> right. face. And it's like, "Oh my god, he's gonna kill him!" So, oh, this could be right. bad. Right, and you're you're in. You're invested at that point. Mm-hmm. This is where the movie really picks up speed yes and yes i was watching one of the interviews um i think yul brenner was actually saying this but he was saying that at this point his character wants to be human and the way he sees being human is playing this game of shooting them and i think that says a lot about the face we're presenting to this intelligence that we've created by saying hey what we like to do is kill and have sex so what are they gonna do they're going to start killing and having sex if they want to become real. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and human. In that, if it's the same interview I think I saw where they were on set and Yule's talking, mm-hmm. he makes mention, he goes, the, the, the gunslinger feels warmth at this point. Right. And you see mm-hmm. the development of the character. Mm-hmm. And he even says, he's like, you see the development of the character as he does it. Every time he kills somebody, he gets closer to that feeling. Right. And you see him get happier and happier. And he absolutely portray, portray, he or portrayed that in there. Oh, it was so good. Right. It was so good. And I think that's what sort of puts this um, in a different space than something like Terminator. Because in Terminator, right. he's Terminator 1, that's a, a machine that's killing someone. And that's his mission. And right. that's what he's programmed to do. Right. right. And he in, in Terminator 1, there is no warmth in that character at all. And... Um, that's what really makes this stand out is you do see that character just go, Hey, I like doing this. I want to do this more. And it, it, I think it adds to the terror because he's not programmed to kill you. He just likes doing it. <laughs> and Agreed. he's just, you know, pursuing that. But, uh, we cut to Rome, I think, uh, for the first time, maybe. I don't remember. But, um, we don't see much of Rome in the movie, but we cut they to Rome. They did a couple of flashes of it here and there, but none, there were no characters consistent. No, no. There. there were no hedonistic stuff. 
But they, we cut to Rome and we see people being stabbed and slammed on the ground and we see that it's just totally crumbling. Chaos. And, right. So Peter makes a run for his horse and uh, he heads out of there. And this is where we find out that the control room is hermetically sealed and mm-hmm. they're running out of air. Uh, Yul Brynner kind of walks between two buildings and, and rides out on a horse after Peter. Yeah, and you, and you actually get to see him start, like, you, you slowly see him analyzing things. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, what feels like a programmed response like mm-hmm. these other scenes have been. You really start to see the char- that character, the gunslinger, start calculating things and planning and plotting and you kind of you can almost feel the gears running in his head at that point right and i I missed it when he first shot john right after that is when we first see that uh point of view that i was talking about earlier where you see the like super pixelated vision where you kind of see uh peter walking around and uh we find out that the control room is losing more oxygen and it's getting warmer and uh there was a, a cool shot of uh, the gunslinger shooting off Peter's hat. He's kind of up on a ridge, <laughs> and uh, he's making his his escape, and the robot yeah. gets the better of his hat. <laughs> that that played out really cool, where he was th- thought he was going to get the bead on him, and mm-hmm. then he'd bow, 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 as he starts just dumping lead on him. Yeah, he's just kind of toying at him at this point. So then Peter rides up to a guy on a golf cart, which I assume is the snake wrangler from earlier, and the guy asks to see his hands, and... Peter kind of acts stupid for a minute, and he does put his hands up, and the guy's like, oh my god, you're a guest. Okay, well, we'll go away. The machines have gone crazy. They're going to kill you. <laughs> he, was, he was both uh, uh, stressed out and so nonplussed right there. He's like, right. you need to get out of here, dude. The machines are going They're crazy. And he's just kind of, <laughs> let me finish right. up putting away my tools and get on this mm-hmm. cart. Well, I don't think the cart was running. I think that was the issue. It looked like he was changing a tire. Oh, maybe changing a tire. Okay. That's what it looked like to me that he was changing a tire on the thing. Okay. And that's what kind of like when, when he, you know, what happens next is he gets in the cart. <laughs> Peter says, uh, uh, it's after me. He's trying to kill me. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, he's going to. Right. He's, yeah, he's, he says, he literally says, don't kid yourself. <laughs> <laughs> he's, and this, it's like, you're not even going to try to tell this guy anything. It's like, no, right. he's going to kill you. He's better than you at everything. He's made right. to do that. You're toast. Uh-huh. Bye. <laughs> and then it's like, can you tell me anything? Can you do anything? He's like, ah, throw acid in his face. Right. He's like, look, you might as well not because you're going to die. You're done. Yeah. He's like, you could do this, but don't, because you're just going to die, oh, so don't do anything. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, Tim Peter gets this thing, he's like, I'm going to try something. And he mm-hmm. rides off, and then the guy gets in there, he's about to crank it, and boom! You brother shoots him in the chest. Mm-hmm. Hey! Don't shoot me! Hey, wait a minute! Hold out your hands. Let me see your hands. You're a guest. You really gave me a scare. Look, uh, everything's broken down. The machines are gone crazy. You know about the machines? Yeah, I repair them. There's one chasing me now, a gunslinger. Gunslinger. Must be a Model 404, maybe a 406. He's a 406. He's got all the sensory equipment. (laughs) It's a beautiful machine. He's after me! I don't doubt it. What can I do? There's nothing you can do. If he's after you, he'll get you. You haven't got a chance. There must be something. Fella, don't kid yourself. There are things you could try. Acid for his uh, visual system. Noise for his hearing. No matter what you did, he'll always be one jump ahead of you. You haven't got a chance. Yes, I do. 
just caves so, in his it was lungs. Like, like, like you saw it coming, but you didn't. And the dude <laughs> right, just, right. he did. But that time, that death was a very Hollywood death. Because your boy throws his right. hands and they're like, Ugh, Oh, yeah. He was back. very fake. <laughs> Maybe he was actually a robot, too. Oh. And that was him playing the part. <laughs> Robots have robots that robot the robots. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm in. It's like Inception, but with robots oh, in no. the Old West. Oh, no. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we see that the gunslinger is using his new infrared because he can see the horseshoe prints in the earth as Peter is trying to get away from him. And Peter, I couldn't tell if it was by accident or if it was if it actually helped, but Peter rode through the river, which seemed to confuse Yul Brenner for a little bit, but um, actually Yul Brenner keeps following him anyway. And Peter goes past these Roman ruins, so he's to uh, Rome world now. And this is where we really get the swell of this awesome soundtrack that yes. was created. Yes. Oh man, I fell in love with that. That it, it was yeah. perfect mood setting for this thing, man. Mm-hmm. You had this that, that cool digital synth noises in the back and just this overwhelming sense of dread that Peter mm-hmm. felt. And it felt like not just the machines had turned on them, but that the music had turned on you. Right. So it put you right in there. Right. Oh, so good, so good, so good. So good. It was like it was no longer enhancing your pleasure. It was attacking you. And that very uh, high-pitched synth, echoey sound, just uh, it's so great. I actually watched this movie with a friend of mine at his house, and he's a, a very big music guy, and he hated the soundtrack. He thought it was horrible. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's from the perspective of somebody that, that makes music per se. But maybe so. I, I don't know. I enjoyed it for that. So I thought, like you said, it added to the mood. And at this point, um, when I was watching, I was reminded of something that I read, um, because you get a shot of Peter and he finds this manhole in Rome world. That's not hidden at all. It's this giant concrete pillar that's sticking out of the garden. Even if you talk about the aqueduct <laughs> systems and things that, that they had, that looked like the most out of place thing Horrible. ever. They didn't even yeah. try to hide it. Like it would have been cool if maybe they'd have had a statue or something that had fallen over and broken near it and you saw maybe mm-hmm. the ruins and maybe he had right. to push some rubble out of the way to get to sure. it. Sure. Cool, cool, right. cool. I could see that. But no, this thing was just like <laughs> manhole cover right here in the middle of everything. It's like, what? If you didn't watch the film, which you should, but if you didn't, it's not a manhole on the ground. No. It's like four feet in the air. And so- this raised concrete structure. <laughs> right. <laughs> So that that was pretty horrible. But uh, Peter goes into the underground and he's met with gray tunnel after gray tunnel after gray tunnel. Yeah. And it, it's like a labyrinth. And that, that hopeless feeling that sets in from that scene mm-hmm. is really cool right. too. Because he just kept running and you get that shot under, you know, showing the motion of him moving. And it's that mm-hmm. under. And you just see this despair and this like, I got, I don't know what to do settling over the actor. And it's so right. well done. Mm-hmm. And uh, we cut back to uh, the gunslinger who has found his way, uh, found his way following Peter. And it was at this point I was reminded of something that I read that apparently uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was inspired a little bit by Yul Brenner's performance. 
and his performance of the Terminator I and sort of that. that steely robotic walk. Well, what was cool is he, he kept his walk. Like you saw every mm-hmm. time he, the programming was still prevalent because mm-hmm. or present, I should say, because he, he'd hook his thumbs in on that belt mm-hmm. and he'd just walk uh, to be kind of silly. He'd walk hard at the mm-hmm. guy uh, and, and, and holding that buckle out very I cowboy. I my brother in hey. <laughs> I knew you were going to make that joke. Um, Sorry. But it's, 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 you can see the program, but it had this, this ridiculous amount of menace to it mm-hmm. that, that's again, to me, even for a movie of this, of that era, still played, still played very yeah. well. Yeah. And like you said, he keeps that walk. It, like he's walking faster, but he's also walking like a dude who just rode a horse. It's really, Odd, but it's also, like you said, menacing, and it, it fits the situation. Exactly. The gunslinger eventually heads underground, and we Peter finds the control room with everyone dead inside. And uh, <laughs> one of this, this is one of my moments of okay. This is a little. There's a word for it, but I can't think of it right now. Uh, Deus ex machina. Is that it? No, he, that's not. He it. found the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. He. <laughs> He happens upon a tray of four different kinds of acid. First of all, why do they need this acid I, on a tray in giant bottles? The only thing I can even remotely think of is maybe there's an admixture they're making to either acid wash or acid seal the mm. motherboard components that are going into these things. But, 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 that all being said, <laughs> it looked like the most like like medieval <laughs> alchemists right. little nook in the middle of all this circuitry like there uh-huh. was no polish or uh, no. order to it it was just like a, and now we have this steve bought us some sulfuric acid set up and we kept it here he got in these really nice labeled bottles i thought it was really great we he just got kept it, it down here. at the apothecary what the hell it's, like, <laughs> it's got oh, like yeah. old english you know, font we, we we took yeah we took all these from uh from <laughs> we took all world. these from medieval world because <laughs> right. some jackass guest had gone through and put real acid in these so let's just right. keep it down here really guys <laughs> But uh, I don't know. That was that was my main sticking point in the movie. Like there are other things I could forgive, but uh, that really still gets to me. They should have figured something else out. But we do get a cool scene later on, or right now, where the gunslinger comes in and he's. You see him sort of. He's kind of has this realization. He knows where Peter is. It seems like, and so he heads directly to this operating room. And, uh, he's looking around and he walks past Peter, who's laying in a gurney. Peter jumps up and throws acid in his face and his face starts smoking. And apparently they put ground up Alka-Seltzer on Yulebrenner's face so that when the act, uh, Peter threw the, the water, water on him, his face. he oh, got the smoking cool. and the bubbling. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty cool practical effect that's that a really we might idea. use one day. Yeah. No, it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but the the gunslinger kind of turns away, and uh, Peter but, takes his chance to run away from him. So, real real quick on that scene, mm-hmm. the, the 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 acid to the face. Oh no, my face is burning. I have to slow down. I got to get this off. Let me kind of casually and slowly turn around yeah. and look at the sink and lean in and act like I'm flushing my face. And then the next scene, he doesn't look like he's burned at all. Yeah, he they. They didn't do a good job. I think part of it is the lighting here, because later on when they make their way into Medieval World, you can see the burn on him. And oh, yeah. I think it was the lighting. I'm not sure, but 
you really do right after the scene it's like did anything actually happen to him exactly it's just like okay that did nothing and it didn't even like 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 nothing happened to the visual sensors for right. him there was no slowdown he sizzled for a second peter got a little mm-hmm. bit of a head start but he was boop right back there again right and he follows peter and he starts shooting out lights and <laughs> This part also sort of took me out. He runs out of bullets. He holds up his gun, and there's a little light on the bottom that says low battery. So, what were what? they shooting? What was he shooting? What was he what shooting? What was he shooting? What was this? Why did the gun have a battery? I thought they were real guns that had some sort of preventative measure on them. I have no idea no, what they was looked, up with that. They looked kind of modified. You saw some little barrel extras or some little True. extra bits on them. Okay. And yes, there are some strong points of not explaining things, mm-hmm. but I think maybe <laughs> a little more explanation of the gun could have saved this that yeah. that part a little bit. Right. Again, not a, not a terrible slip up, but meh, took you out of the out of the fiction a little bit. And why does the gun need batteries? I, I don't understand, <laughs> but. <clears throat> Whatever. Uh, Peter runs into Medieval World, and he finds the really creepy Black Knight and the Queen sitting on the thrones, just staring off into space. Well, their batteries had run out. Right. But it was really it creepy. Was re- no, thought. it was very creepy. It's like, I thought one of them was going to get up, or yeah. maybe Peter was going to try to get the Black Knight to defend him, maybe. Oh, okay. Um, that would have been cool if mm-hmm. Yul Brenner and the Black Knight would have fought. Just saying. That would have been cool, for sure. But, uh, nope, the gunslinger catches up to him, and we see his infrared vision, which reminded me of Predator uh, from the Predator movies. It wasn't quite as colorful, but he did have the sort of graded shades of red to show where the heat was. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And at this point, we do get a little bit better lighting on his face, and you do kind of see that his face is melted a little bit. And Peter hides next to a torch, which I guess works. And uh, because of the heat signature from the torch obscures him, and the gunslinger sort of looks there and looks away and turns his head away. For some reason, Peter exhales really loudly. And of course, the gunslinger turns right back around, just like in Jurassic Park, when the girl screams and the T-Rex turns back around. I was immediately reminded of that. Oh, man. I've seen Jurassic Park dozens of times. So. <laughs> I kind of like how Ewell Brenner really sold it as almost this awe that his, like, it, it, it was kind of twofold. It was almost like he was, like, shocked that his eyes weren't working properly anymore because of the amount of ambient heat. But then, but Peter's reaction, you almost see him kind of like, again, you see the gears turning in his head, where it's like, Peter goes, wait, wait, oh. He's learning. The heat. Okay. What affects it, Right. But then, yeah, like a klutz, he just like, like, <laughs> huh, oh, I'm going to get you now. And right. then he just picks up that torch, thwacks him with it, and Man. the guy goes up like an inferno. That's a nat 20. That was like, <laughs> <laughs> that was like the craziest thing. Is It's like, now, again, using that scene, going way back to a comment you made when they blew up the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Things, uh, what's what's safe, what isn't. Oh, yeah. Are all the clothing that they made for this place that flammable? Because if so... <laughs> well, it was the 70s. No guest ne- Haha, <laughs> polyester. <sighs> no guest needs to get near an open flame at all, period. Because if they do, they're dead. They're dead. There's no... Oh, my that, gosh. That robot went up like a Roman friggin' candle. That was insane. Yeah. And in that interview we talked about earlier, it's a behind-the-scenes thing, and they show the actual yes, stunt guy. <laughs> that was awesome! <laughs> and he's... 
totally on fire and they show him taking the hood off and everything. Props to that guy. The part where they're like they're yelling, Steve! down Steve (laughs) and he can't hear him because the inferno's going right so he finally looks back and you almost see him in that again it didn't play in the movie but in the behind the scenes he kind of gets this oh down got it and he hits the ground and they (laughs) get the in there and they get him oh it was so cool like I couldn't do it. There's no way I could not be a stunt guy. I would be I'm terrified. Like I would yeah. just be the running around would be legit because I'd be like, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> no, no way. Because that's the thing. You have to act while you're on fire. You don't just catch on fire and run around. You've got to actually extreme do acting, acting while you're on fire. Right. Oh, Truly, God. some of the unsung heroes of film <laughs> for are sure. Those stunt guys for sure. Let's see. So we've got the gunslinger on fire, and (laughs) Peter, being the idiot that he is, decides, huh, well, the bad guy's down, so what would you do, Gil? I I don't know. I would maybe, let's say, wander off into the dungeon section in the lower areas of this place. Yeah. Maybe find a random woman chained up to a wall. Sure. Hear her moaning. (laughs) Maybe I'd go get a ladle and try to give her some water. I don't no know. Water. I no don't know. Water. And she keeps saying, yeah, and she and she might just repeat, no water, no water. I pour it in her head and then <laughs> she just, you know, shorts <laughs> out because she's a robot. What in the name of, okay, did we or did we not earlier in the movie see some of the other, other robots drinking whiskey? Joel Brenner. He takes a shot. So, <laughs> do we think there's maybe different classifications of robot and this torture robot because let's be honest, that's what yeah. it was. She was right. there to be beaten in the dungeon, put yeah. two and three together and make, oh no, that woman got beat on. I did not get that till the second time I watched it. And I was oh. like, wait a minute, she's a robot and she's chained up. And he initially thinks she's a human exactly. that's being tortured. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is a robot. A human put that robot there. That was so creepy. Speaking of hostile. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that, that was just very, and, and as she's shorting out, you see, uh, uh, Peter, again, the actor that played the Peter character was amazing. His facial yeah. reactions were not so over the top and bug eyed, but in this instance, you see him just recoil from her, like, Oh God, no, no, mm-hmm. no, I'm so done with this place. Right. Um, and then, you know, as he's backing up, you get a very classic scene set up where he backs up and thump. What is that? It's faceless Yule Brenner burnt to a charcoal briquette right behind yep. him. And uh, yeah, he tries to tries to tackle him and misses and just zzz, 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 boom hits the floor and then liquidates. He turns into this nice little pile of ash and cont- finishes kind of burning out. Right. I assumed as he came up smoking that it was almost like one of those underground fires where like the insides are still melting and everything. <laughs> right. And this is that yeah. last bit of the servos burning out right before it hits the ground. Right. Man, this this ending piece here, this this capstone of the audio kind of drowns out for a minute. You don't get a lot of music. You get these this great de- just dejected look from Peter where he is just done. He is just uh-huh. destroyed. This has bedrocked him. And he kind of sits down and looks up. And as it zooms in on his face, you get the commercial comes back to tie it all in. 
and you hear yeah. the the taglines come in from this the, the vacation you'll never forget you'll never forget you'll never forget <laughs> you'll never forget take our hovercraft to medieval world roman world and west world contact us today or see your travel agent boy have we got a vacation for you vacation for you for you for you 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 Peter will literally never forget oh, that. Oh, that dude is scarred for <laughs> life. And then they close yeah. out the film. They close out the film with the credits. Yep. So I absolutely, you know what, guys? With that, we got to put the final nail in the coffin on this one. And what a movie. This, I, I, I think I, I'm having, and I'm smiling as I'm saying all this. I've been smiling through the whole time we've been talking, guys, because Levi brought this film up. And said, hey, man, have you ever seen this? They're going to be doing the HBO series. And I'm like, no. And he's like, we have to do this. We absolutely have to do this movie. And, uh, I, you know, we got to the point where I finally watched it. And I was just enraptured. Like I said, from the moment that that synth music came in after the after the commercial and you got that that amazing scene, that amazing frame shot where you've got the guy's glasses and you see everything moving over it. And I'm like, oh, this is so mm-hmm. MTV. Through the remainder of the film all the way to the end, I was just enraptured. This is now up there with Logan's run for me of one of my favorite sci-fi films to come out of that era, period. I agree. And um, it had actually been a few years since I watched it. I got kind of on a Michael Crichton movie kick a a while back, like in college. And I remember I got this on VHS for the first time in a little three-pack with... uh, the Andromeda Strain and Coma, and uh, two interesting movies. The Andromeda Strain was one of his books, uh, one of my favorites, probably. Excellent movie, but um, yeah, good movie too. But uh, yeah, I I had a lot of fun revisiting this movie, and I I kind of want to go out and get it on Blu-ray now. <laughs> I own it on DVD, but oh, I imagine the Blu-ray release was is awesome. It's probably got some great extras on there too. Yeah, they do. They have a few extras, and uh, I mean, it's just such an interesting film, especially when it was released and the topics that were addressed by, you know, someone like Michael Crichton, who really does... The reason that I got into Michael Crichton's books so much was because I like sci-fi, but I don't like the fantasy-ish sci-fi as much. I like more of the grounded in science sci-fi, if that makes sense. I guess that's what sci-fi is, but I like when... You build up from known sciences to create something, and that's definitely what Michael Crichton does. He researches the crap out of yeah. every book, or did. He's passed away since, but um, he did research the crap out of every book that he did, and he injects a lot of real science into his books. And that's Not whimsy. What, yeah, l- exactly, like exactly. A very, very severe lack of whimsy, and that's a good thing. There is a place for that, and I do enjoy that sometimes, but... Going back to Westworld really brought that back, and this might be, uh, well, Jurassic Park has a special place in my heart, but this might be my favorite Michael Crichton movie after watching it again, because it does have a lot of depth and a lot of relevance to what's happening now in technology, and we're having to start to answer some of these questions of what do we do with AI when it becomes sentient and at what point does AI have rights? And this movie definitely raises those questions. Yeah. And you don't want to say that it's ahead of its time, but it seriously is 
eerie how well it portrays where we're at. It really is. He got mm-hmm. it. I can tell you something that, that's, that I, I wish I had not got, um, was reading <coughs> a synopsis of the sequel of this movie. Oh, Gil, I will one up you. I actually watched the entire film oh, with my you wife. Poor, poor man. <laughs> it was so. It it wasn't horrible, but it was definitely the bigger, brassier, Hollywoodized version of this story. Right. And the reason I said that because it, it stars uh, Peter Fonda, who I like, and uh, Blythe Danner. I really like her. Her hair looks exactly the same as it does today. <laughs> it, it's all bouncy. It and is that hair. They saved it. They've hermetically <laughs> sealed it after every movie. And my my wife made the comment that she could rock a uh, a bodysuit because <laughs> she wore like the seventies. She had like a big uh, ah, what are those called? The big sweater with the big neck. Uh, 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 not a V-neck. Uh, what the hell, Gil? Why can't we remember clothing uh, names? Probably because it's almost one that, in the morning. That could very well be it. Anyway, I'll move on. Uh, but basically, the the seventies fashion was strong with this yeah. one, even though it's supposed to be in the future of the first movie, which was set in nineteen eighty three. So supposedly this was probably bordering on like late eighties, but it still had that seventies aesthetic. Watch Westworld, guys. We we a hearty recommendation. Watch Westworld. Go read the synopsis for Future World. I, I, that's my thing. If you're, I'll say, if you're itching for more of the same, you can watch it. And there's even some extended. Well, I won't give anything away, but there are some scenes with Yul Brenner. He actually reprised his role as the gunslinger. Mm. But the general premise of the movie is uh, Peter Fonda is a newspaper reporter and Blythe Danner is a TV reporter. And they they have a personal connection. Um, I don't know if they're dating or what, but they definitely have a history together. And uh, Peter Fonda has actually written a story about what happened at Westworld. Right. And he kind of gave Delos some problems and, and they had some issues, but they, they, they fixed things. And like people do, they forgot that people died and that robots murdered people. And they were like, Hey, let's go back. And interestingly enough, they shut down Westworld. Uh, but they opened up a brand new theme park section called future world. Well, they have future world. They have medieval world. I think they called it something else, but they also had, uh, spa world. <laughs> where old people take drugs to make them feel younger and and hallucinate that they're younger. But it was a very drawn-out Hollywood version of this story. Westworld is definitely the distilled, definitive version, I would say. But from Future World, they did make a TV show called Beyond Westworld that apparently built on all the structure that they put underneath Future World. And, well, I won't spoil Future World. If you want more of the same, you should check it out. I recommend it. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. I so think. what what we'll do is, is Levi made a really neat uh, YouTube playlist. And we'll see about putting the link to that up where you guys can go take a look. It's, it's a couple of clips put together, some different things. Part of that playlist, though, is the trailers for the HBO mm. show that's going to be coming out very soon. Um, yes. I am so itching to watch this. The cast on this alone, which I will not spoil here. I will not spoil casting here if you don't know. I want you guys to go watch this and see the lineup mm-hmm. they've got for this. And it will, after Pretty you've incredible. watched the, the original movie and then see what they're putting in, you're going to be just excited as we are. Trust me. And some of those uh, trailers that they released are very interesting because it seems like First of all, it seems like they just have Westworld. It seems like that's a world all its own. And 
I, I read an, an interview or something with the creators. They were kind of being a little cheeky about when the movie takes place, where it takes place. And so I think the, the TV show itself is a mystery of what exactly is going on. So I think they're actually adding more layers to this, um, this stew that they've cooked up here. Oh, now you got me even more interested. And I think what we're going to try to do, we're going to try to watch that first episode and yep. get a, a quick podcast back to you guys this week or next to just give you our thoughts, kind of compare and contrast the two. I think that's it for Westworld. Uh, for show notes and other oddities, visit our podcast page at fromthebonevault.podbean.com. And if you want to join the conversation, please send us an email at fromthebonevault at gmail.com. Well, from the Bone Vaults, this is Gil. And this is Levi. Good night, everybody, and stay scary. A discouraging word. And the skies are not cloudy all day. <laughs>